Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 12 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. And if you are new to the show, I invite you to go back and listen to previous episodes. And if you are enjoying the show, please like, subscribe, and share the show. It means a lot to me and helps bring new listeners into the conversation. Also, feel free to reach out to me through email at contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com. Or you can find me on Facebook, MeWe, YouTube, or Twitter. But email is always best. Since I began the podcast, I've had a number of people offer to donate to help support my efforts. But until this week, I really hadn't invested the time to learn how to add that function to the website. So if you would like to help me produce more content exploring the intersection between Christian faith and psychedelics, please visit thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com and select the support tab to make a donation. Your help is very much appreciated, and your donation will be used to help improve the show. That link again is thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com slash support. Thanks. Today we welcome Jason Sheffield to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Jason grew up in the church, and at an early age, he felt called to become a pastor. Preaching his first sermon at the age of 16, he confirmed his desire to help others learn more about God. He spent the next 12 years exploring Christian leadership as a pastor, discipler, co-founding a conference, and church planting. During this exploration, he started asking questions that cracked the foundation he'd be building upon. In 2012, he left full-time ministry to start working at a tech company, which was the start of his deconstruction and ultimately reconstruction to a new depth and love for the divine. Today he works as a marketing director for a transformational recovery coaching company, and he calls the state of Colorado his home, where he and his partner love raising their four children. Jason, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Clint, I'm so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this and uh, really being able to dive into our conversation. Excellent. In light of that, why don't you begin by just telling us a little bit about your early life and how faith or spiritual practice played a role in that and some of your spiritual influences? Mm, yeah, great, great question. So for me, I always joked um, that I was born into Christianity. Uh, I didn't really have much of a choice uh, in the sense that my parents uh, were, you know, Christians, my grandparents were Christians on both sides. I had this lineage of family that was deeply integrated into the church. And so growing up, I just kind of, it was life. Um, we, we did the church thing. We went and did kind of the traditional, uh, for us, the stream we swam in was in a little bit more of the non-denominational side of things. Um, so kind of grew up going to pretty fun churches for the most part, um, you know, especially in the non-denominational scene in the nineties, 
it was all about, you know, being as attractive as possible and having the best possible kids programs and the best possible youth groups. And that's what I really kind of grew up in. Um, I always joked, you know, you'd hear those testimony stories from people and uh, they're inspiring and they're life-changing. And I, I, mean, I even went to a Christian school from like kindergarten all the way through graduation. So never had any sort of like outside public school perspective, always in the Christian, Christian stream of things. And so, you know, you get people that come and do assemblies or they would do a, a church thing and they would tell their testimonies. And, uh, you know, here I was as like a 14-year-old and I'm like, man, my testimony is so vanilla, like my biggest struggle in life is checking out the girl's boobs next to me. And like, I'm not doing drugs or I'm not doing any of this other stuff. Like how, how was my redemption story or my conversion story supposed to be like these people? And I always struggled with it uh, in a lot of ways. Cause I just felt very vanilla uh, in my Christian faith. Cause I just, I believed it and I loved it. I think that's the testimony every Christian wants for their child. <laughs> it is right. <laughs> And again, right. here's the beauty of it. Honestly, looking back on it, there's some, some really beautiful things that come from that, right? Well, yes, um, spiritual influences, an influence of mine now has been, you know, Father Richard Rohr, uh, and he talks a lot about the concept of order, disorder, and reorder, and the beauty of growing up in order. And that was it. I grew up in a very ordered thing. I had a very positive uh, experience. I mean, nothing's perfect, but I had a great home life, a great relationship with my parents, um, and grew up really thriving in, in the church. Early on, I was really pegged as a leader. I led my first group of peers when I was in like eighth grade and, and kind of from then on always saw myself kind of as a, as a leader within the church, you know, getting mentored by the youth pastor. I think I preached my first sermon when I was 16 and, or 17. And, and at that point decided I just wanted to go into the ministry. I wanted to be a pastor. Uh, I was a good communicator. I had some leadership skills, uh, very unrefined at that point, but it was talent, if you will. Uh, and so leaders around me would always kind of invest in me and say, oh yeah, let's, let's get you into more leadership or let's really develop you. And I just kind of took that hook, line and sinker as my, my life's path that I was going to be a pastor. Do you recall what that first sermon was about by any chance? Oh my gosh. Um, Sorry to put you on the spot. But. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. I, I can honestly see myself on stage and I remember a sword being a part of it. I don't remember exactly what I was talking about, but I remember I had to like find a sword because I wanted it as a prop and, and something uh, to that can. But yeah, I don't, I don't remember that first sermon that I preached. And then it was, I would say it was shortly after that, my other big speaking experience that I had where everybody really affirmed that I had to do this was actually at my best friend's eulogy. Uh, my best friend at 19 passed away in a rock climbing accident. It was really, you know, kind of, uh, you know, altering in life's course. We've been best friends since we were like six. We've been climbing partners uh, and he fell here uh, uh, climbing in the Garden of the Gods. And, you know, obviously a, a life altering moment, but I was asked to give a eulogy at his, um, at his, his service. And it was a big service. He went to a big mega church. There's probably about a thousand people at his funeral. I mean, the, the, the auditorium was packed out a tragic death, you know, young kind of thing, uh, a lot brought a lot of people out and he was, he was well known in the community, but I remember more than anything, getting after that, um, people coming up to me after saying what I said, and like, you need to be a preacher. <laughs> and I was like, my goodness, like I'm 19 going through grief, but like, it was the thing I held on to, uh, really kind of throughout my, 
my early years was this ability to communicate and this passion that I had for God, this passion that I had for um, the truth and the, uh, a passion for coming alongside and serving other people on their journeys was something that really inspired me and, and really pushed me forward in those early days. So did that lead you education-wise? Did that lead you to seminary or religious education? Of some yeah. Type? So as I mentioned, I did like Christian education my entire youth, uh, even out of college or out of high school. I went and did a Bible school in England. I kind of took a gap year and went to this little uh, Bible school called Cape and Ray uh, with an organization called the Torchbearers. And so I took a year, lived in Europe, studied the Bible, was unaccredited, but it was a year of just really growth and, and whatnot. And after that year, I, I knew I wanted to be a pastor, but I was like, I need some public education. <laughs> I need some balance here. I've been in Christian education my entire life. Uh, and I really wanted to study communications. I felt like, you know, it was something that uh, I was like, what, what's another angle of learning this thing? And so that's what I decided to do for schooling. I went and got a degree in communications. Uh, I went to Colorado State University. But during that whole time, I was involved in ministries. I was involved in navigators. Um, I got married very young. Uh, at that point, my partner, we had known each other since middle school. And so we were just like, we were life best friends. And so we got married at 21 and we were leaders within, you know, kind of, it was this weird thing in my life where I was always putting more leadership than the age probably justified. So at 21, I'm leading like 20 year olds. I'm married. So for some reason I have more authority than like the 20 year old single dude It's kind of weird sometimes in the Christian world, how marriage can like elevate someone. And, and I always presented very mature. I always acted older than my age. So I was put in positions that were of more leadership. And sometimes I look back and I'm like, wow, I was not prepared for that. Yeah. I wasn't really ready to lead. I hadn't been led myself in, in some ways. And so yeah, I, I spent a lot of time kind of in those early days involved in ministry. And then I started working with my first church when I was like 22, leading the college ministry um, and really, again, pursuing what does it mean to be a pastor? I can sympathize a little bit. Any institution, be it a church or scouting or other institutions I was involved in along the way, you know, I was always eager to serve. Mm. And so people pick up on that rapidly. Like, Hey, we got somebody here who actually wants to be here. You know, let's, let's get this person trained. And so I would often find myself kind of unintentionally sometimes rising through the ranks just because I was happy to be there mm -hmm. and happy to be involved and happy to you know participate. And, you know, it's understandable when you're leading an organization, you know, you need volunteers, mm -hmm. you need people, you're always on the lookout for people who have gifts and uh, you want to include them. So it's natural yeah. with your, you know, your ability to speak well and your desire to serve God and, and invest in, in the institution and you're showing marks of a cultural maturity. It's obvious that, that people would put you in those places. But like you say, often we're not really completely emotionally prepared to carry those burdens, even though we may be um, academically ready or, at least, or, or be eager to exercise those gifts. Sometimes we just haven't matured enough to carry all those those burdens. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I go, I go back often and as I'm, I, the season I'm in now is a lot more just reconstruction of, of my, my world reality and faith gone through deconstruction, which we'll get to, I'm sure. But one thing is, as I look back to, and, and 
I, I have had seasons where I'm like, wow, I, and I almost regret for maybe the ways that I led or the immaturity that maybe I was leading from, especially internally knowing there are things that are going on that were not aligned with what was going on externally, this kind of process of what was happening to me. And I, I look back to it and I've really tried to kind of come to a place of not holding it with judgment. It just was like, I am these things. I, I don't fault any of the, the mentors or the leaders that I served with as trying to use or abuse, you know, me as a person or as a leader or all these things. Cause I wanted it. I wanted to be up there. I, I so deeply desired it. And now I look back and I'm like, yeah, I, my approach would be different, but I'm also 38 now. So my experience is going to be different. And I should expect that, uh, that who I was at 23 was passion. And you kind of just see that, that energy of almost that zealotness, like young men lead with passion. Uh, they lead with just a singular mindset of this thing that they want to accomplish. And that was it. I mean, that's, that's who we are as young men and it gets expressed in a million different ways. And for me, it was the church and it was everything I could do was revolved around understanding how to interpret the words of Christ, how to live a life that, that was reflectant of Christ. Um, I was very deep into like the discipleship mindset and I loved playing on the fringes of Christianity. So for me, like, you know, guys like Rob Bell blew my mind back in the day before Rob even got famous. I remember listening to podcasts of him where he was doing things in the church that I'd never heard anybody do. He was this master communicator. He'd bring a goat into a service and like, what is, you know, he was just doing things that no one else was doing. And so I was deeply inspired by, by Rob Bell. I remember when Velvet Elvis first came out, it blew my mind. It, it blew my world to think that um, here's this guy that's questioning the virgin birth. And just not even like saying whether it's right or wrong, but in that book, and he's like, hey, what if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin? Just what if? And like, I would talk to my friends and they couldn't even handle that question. They're like, that, that's that, you can't even ask that question. And I was asking that question. I was like, well, what would happen? Would my entire faith fall apart based on this one concept that Christ must be born of a virgin? It's a really interesting question to ask. Um, I began asking questions around. I remember another thing Rob would talk about it, the idea of like, you know, God being a God of chaos and order. We only love a God of order. The God of chaos is like, we don't really touch. And he's like, well, what if, what if God is both? I think Rob even used this term back in the day called chaotic. You know, what if we serve a chaotic God that's both chaos pure randomness happening in the universe, and yet also deep, beautiful order. Now, these are questions that I was beginning to ask and dive into. And, you know, I always kind of felt like a little bit of an outsider within my community of people, because these were dangerous questions to be asking. Um, you know, at that point, early 2000s, mid 2000s, you know, you had the emergent church coming around. You had all these thinkers that people were like, oh, those are, those are like the progressives and whatnot. And for me, I was always like, mm, but they're, but they're onto something here. They're inviting us into something deeper. And so I really wanted to, to explore those things, which ultimately led me to leaving kind of a, a more structured church. Uh, and going to Pennsylvania to work with a mentor who'd kind of been mentoring me from afar to do a year of church planning. And he had started a church plant and he's like, hey, I want you to come out and be an apprentice for a year and really learn the ins and outs of what it looks like to, to be a pastor and to plant a church. 
And that was a huge year for me because I could ask questions. He was very open. We had a, a structure of church that was a little uncommon where now it's probably more common, but back then we gathered and scattered. So every other week we were meeting in house churches. Every other week we were coming together as a community. We were really exploring the edges of things within Christianity and the and some of the traditional stuff. And you know, people would say, oh, you're just the emergent church or you're a missional church or all these different terms that we kind of threw on it. At that point, I decided to go into more formal education. I went back into seminary, um, did a year of that and, and really began to explore what does it mean to follow Christ from like a discipleship model? What is, what does that process really begin to look like? Uh, and that, that kind of was the next phase of my growth and really stepping in and, and being a pastor. Did you, at some point thereafter, you found yourself as a, a pastor or a lead pastor? Or so not as a lead. Um, it was always interesting. I always kind of had this tension of like, do I want to lead? Like, again, I, I knew I was pretty young. I didn't have, I thought I had that entrepreneurial spirit. I was really trying to figure myself out. And um, yeah, I never found myself in a lead position. So kind of in that year, we did some great stuff. We started at a conference called the Epic Fail Pastors Conference, where we said, hey, we want to bring together pastors who have failed. Because at that time, this is maybe 2000, what was this, 2011, you know, so much was about success in Christianity and, you know, the three Bs, buildings, budgets, and butts, right? How big are they? How big are your buildings? How big is your budget? How many butts do you have in the seats? It's how people measure success in the church. And we look, we're looking at this landscape and look, what if we had a conference where we put our worst foot forward, where we invite speakers who have failed, where we actually, we met in a failed church that had been turned into a bar and the old sanctuary was where they like, it was literally sticky from beer spilt the night before. And we brought 70 pastors into this place and like literally your feet are sticking to the ground. And it was this beautiful moment of really exploring the vulnerabilities of failure. And because pastors, I mean, all of us have experienced failures in some way, shape or form, but especially when you start looking within the church, and pastors who have experienced deep fail failure and whether it's moral failure, which is typically what we tend to think about, oh, you know, they've had an affair or they've done something wrong or they've embezzled from the church or some sort of failure. But a lot of things people don't talk about is amoral failure. Like when you're planting a church and it just doesn't work and you have to shut it down, what do you do? Uh, how do you move forward from that? There's nothing you did wrong. You just, the thing just simply failed. And so we started this whole experiment. We ended up running about four of them, five of them over the course of about a year and a half in different parts of the country. And it was beautiful. And we got to, to really kind of, again, push some of the boundaries around conversations of what people were talking about. Uh, and from there, I went to the other end of the spectrum. So I did a year in Pennsylvania, uh, again, trying to learn the ins and outs of pastoring. And then uh, I went to Nebraska and Lincoln, Nebraska, and worked at one of the biggest mega churches in Nebraska. Like hands down, it was one of the largest churches. I got about six thousand members, uh, and so I went from about a hundred people, you know, literally meeting in the boys and girls club, to like the all of the things that come alongside of a mega church. And that year was a tough year for me, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, again, faith, God, how does all this work? And and I began to really question some things, um, questioning again, some of these, these deeper realities around God. And I didn't feel comfortable with the context of how people were, were diving in. And, and so I just kind of felt like my reality was, um, I would ask these questions and I just kind of kept hitting this wall 
of like, okay, like I don't, I don't have answers for these questions. And, and frankly, I didn't feel like I had a lot of freedom to explore them. Uh, and so kind of at the end of that year, I was, I kind of came around, I was like, all right, this time I want to go plant a church. Uh, I was 28 at the time. So it was about 10 years ago. And I remember taking a vision trip back to Pennsylvania because I was going to go plant with a guy that trained me. It made total sense. So we went out and took a vision trip and we were looking at this little community to start a church and it was super cool, hip, had all the right things, right? Had like a cool little beer culture that was up and coming. I'm big into cycling. And so it had a cool bike culture, all the right things that would seem like the right step. And I had this moment that now I've, I've really got the clarity around but I couldn't, I couldn't do it. We were having a prayer meeting with the elders and let, you know, we were just saying, you know, God, what do we have for Jason? What's next? And one of the elders just kind of abruptly asked me, he goes, Jason, if you weren't to plant a church, what would you do? And without even thinking about it, I said, start a bike shop and everybody stopped. They were like, wait, what? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, like if I don't do a church, like I'm going to go start a bike shop, but that's my other big passion in life. And and, and it really got us then exploring. And I realized I didn't want to start a church. And at the time, I didn't understand why. Now, looking back, I realized I struggled with evangelizing. And the reality was to grow church, you have two methods. You have, you know, you kind of have the transplant growth, which is basically you just steal all the people from churches around because you're doing it more cool or more hip or whatever. And so they all come to you or you grow through conversion. So it's either transplants or conversion. And our motto was conversion. We didn't want to take people from other churches. That's not the point. The point is to bring new people into the kingdom of God. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't evangelize. I, I could not preach the message of Christ. I was great at selling bikes. I was great at selling other ideas, but I couldn't, you know, for, for kind of a crass way of saying it, sell Jesus. And, and as I look back on it now, it's because I hadn't been, I hadn't gone through a conversion. I was born into this thing. I, I believed it. I knew it. It shaped the container of my life. And yet, I hadn't been through a conversion experience. I hadn't been born again yet. I hadn't actually dealt with my actual deeper, inner, dark, sinful, whatever term you, ego you want to put to it. It had been just, it just had been existing and growing and going through this whole process, but I wasn't convinced. Uh, I love Jesus. I believed in all these things, but I couldn't, couldn't preach it. Uh, and so at that point, my path kind of separated from being in the church and I started, um, I moved back to Colorado Springs with my wife at the time. Uh, we had a one-year-old son and came back home. Kind of, this is where we knew it. I was like, I'm going to go start a bike shop and spent about six months trying to figure that out. Uh, that didn't work. And then ended up working for a, a tech company. I'll pause there. And then we can dive into other parts of, <laughs> of that, that second phase of the story. Yeah, that's a lot to chew on. You know, it's, it's not, it's not rare though, that in our youth, especially in our, you know, late teens, early twenties, we have this deep ambition for the thing that we're going to be or do. And it takes time for us to grapple with that and find out if our gifts and our natural intuitions match up with what it takes to do that. You know, I had this grand idea. I was going to have some kind of cool Irish pub or something, you know, and it, I don't think that's where I belong, you know, but it, but I held on to that, you know, that idea and that dream and peruse the real estate, you know, options every week in the paper. And you, it, and you anchor to those things, you know, you're emotionally attached, whether it's good for you or not, you know, you just, you almost can't escape it because you've, you've spent so much time attaching yourself to these ideas. 
and and now your identity, right? So I mean, like for yeah. me, my identity, who I was, was a pastor. My friends knew me, my community, everybody put me on this pedestal because of how I showed up in the world with my gifts. And I was hard at times. I hated it. I was like, don't put, I'm not on a pedestal. I'm just a normal person. Uh, and again, I wasn't amazing or anything, but it's just this natural thing that I feel like happens is we tend to want to hold people in this higher level than they really are. And again, it was my identity. And, and on some levels, I'm sure I got off on it. I loved being on the pedestal. I loved being the good boy, right? Uh, I, I don't know if I'll ever write about my experiences, but one of the things I often joke about is if I do, it'll be kind of the concept of being the good guy. Because that's what I was. I was a good guy. I did things right. I got married young. I got married to my you know high school sweetheart. Did all the things that a good guy does and did, and I and that was me. I, I really was my identity in many ways was being a a good guy, um, and being a pastor and leading in the church and all of that came from a, a pure place and the desire to to be a good guy. Uh, but I think as we can see in a lot of tra tradition, especially in in the the Christian faith, like the good guy has to go through a dark night of the soul, right? Father Roar kind of talks a lot about this idea of falling upward that, you know, we have our first phase of life, we have the order and we can have all of that. And then, um, you know, something happens and, and death comes in some way, shape or form. And, and we have to kind of figure out what comes on the other side of that. I think Annie Lamont calls it the, the cosmic banana peel comes to our doorstep and we slip on it. Uh, and then the question is, what do we do from, from that point? Yeah, it's a bit of a hero's journey. It is. It is. It, goes, it takes me back to something you mentioned with that, uh, you know, that conference where you had all the pastors that failed. Yeah. You know, that, that could be a huge opportunity to learn and grow for people. You know, mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, we don't treat our pastors and priests like human beings. Mm -hmm. You know, we... We hold them to a standard that's really unachievable, mm -hmm. you know, but it's difficult. You know, you, uh, you naturally look up to the person who's giving you spiritual direction. I mean, that's a huge responsibility and a huge investment on the parishioners level, you know, because you're, I mean, you've, you're putting all your eggs in this person's basket sometimes, probably not the best idea, but that's what we do. We look at these people as spiritual parents. And as spiritual children, um, sometimes we're blind to uh, the humanity of the people that we, you know, invest in in that way. So you started the bike shop and that and that mm -hmm. didn't work out. You went into you went in di a different direction. You went into marketing and or into uh, technology. Correct. Yeah. 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 It was interesting. So part of that journey of of saying, OK, I don't want to I'm not going to be a pastor some of that came from also this realization, I was never going to be the lead. I knew I was never going to be the lead guy. I, again, I think it's probably because I hadn't been through a conversion experience yet. I couldn't, I really believe in the principle, you can't lead people to, where you're, to places you haven't gone. And when it came to just elements of life, like there are big chunks that were missing. Yes, I could hang with anybody from like a theological perspective or a communication perspective. And I had a, I, I had a lot of leadership but it kind of sat on a little bit of a false foundation because I hadn't really done any of that deeper work. I think kind of like, as you were saying, uh, the, the pattern is sometimes to maybe outsource our healing or outsource this stuff to like the leaders that are around us. So we just kind of do that. And then we try to ride on their coattails 
And that, that'll only take you so far. And I think that's a little bit of a pattern that had kind of happened for me was I was just riding on, on sometimes other people's coattails, um, leaders that were investing in me, they saw all this stuff, but like, again, that deeper conversion work of myself had it taken place. And so when it came time to kind of figure out what was next, you know, the, the bike shop never, it never really took off. I spent like six months researching it and putting a business plan together. And someone was like, dude, you don't have any money. There's no way you're going to start a bike shop. And I was like, okay, crap. Well, I don't have any money. So, okay. What am I going to do? The idea behind it though, the whole time was to really explore the idea of business's mission, right? So I kind of started to realize the church, if I wasn't going to be the lead pastor, then and the landscape of the church just very practically is, well, you're in a supporting role then from a leadership perspective and a job perspective. And I kind of, at that point, again, this is almost 10 years ago, was like, you know, the church, the church isn't in a growth mode right now. <laughs> if anything, we are seeing a, a, a detraction of the church. It is shrinking in size. Society is shifting. And I honestly, I was like, you know, 10 years from now, I, ironically, but my thought then was, uh, what if I'm not in the church? How am I ever going to get a job if I'm 35, 37, and I've never had a position outside of the church? And I kind of just got very practical with myself. I was like, okay, well, if the church isn't going to be my function in the world, then I want to go explore how to do business's mission, how to, how to actually have business with a kingdom mindset, and how can business influence and, and really make a difference uh, in our world, whether it's the relationships that you have with, with your, your staff, or whether it's the product that you have or whatever. So that was my grand idea for the bike shop. Didn't manifest itself there. What it did end up doing was uh, two guys that I had had uh, been youth pastors in the group that uh, I grew up in, in the church, they had been like youth leaders. They weren't the youth pastors, but youth leaders. Uh, they started a tech company. Uh, basically, uh, it's called Bomb Bomb, and it allows you to record a video right from your computer and email it out to people. So it instantly, it was things I loved. It was communication. It was technology. And these guys were starting this business as a concept of business's mission. They loved Jesus. They wanted to see the kingdom expand in this world. And so they decided like, yeah, let's figure out how to do this as a tech company and keep a mindset of kingdom, kingdom driven. And so kind of, you know, it was awesome. It was a perfect fit for me. I got, I got hired on uh, just doing customer service and sales, not really knowing uh, too much of it. And at that point, we were about 12 employees and that started a six-year journey of really coming into myself. I found for the first time that in business, I could actually be really successful. And I was, all the things that I was good at as a pastor uh, kind of showed up in the business world as well. As a good communicator, as a good leader of people, and I could really connect and grew up within the ranks within the organization and as the company grew and evolved, I kept growing in my leadership to where when I left, I was VP of content marketing. I was one of the few people that went from working the front lines all the way up into the executive suite. And again, from a, from a young man, kind of early 30s perspective, I had arrived. I had been successful. I was finally getting paid a good salary. I wasn't living on that ministry salary anymore, uh, trying to figure out like, okay, how, how tight can we keep things? And it was, it was also at that moment that the failure really started to, to seep in. And I began, uh, I got involved with a coworker uh, in a relationship and we entered into a, uh, a four-year affair. 
And it was something that, I mean, it was my, my death. It was my dark night of the soul. Um, so externally, I'm getting all these successes. I'm winning internally. I am building a literal house of cards around myself. And everybody is thinking like, oh, wow, like all this great stuff is happening. And I, I questioned every element of church. I wanted, I wanted nothing to do with it. I pulled back in every way, shape or form in my life um, because I really began just living two lives. I was like, well, if I can't figure out this thing and I can't figure out this thing, I can't get them out to integrate, then I'll just do it separately. And so I just created kind of two parallel lives for myself, which is never good. Yeah. Eventually either one or neither went out. Exactly. Well, you know, a lot of what we do here is try to understand how psychedelics and plant medicines have played a role in people's lives. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that 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 collapse, you know, of the life you had built ultimately probably led to, you know, you finding that doesn't sound like psychedelics or any type of drugs was a part of your you know, early life. Um, Right. So how did that somehow end up on your radar at all? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. So my life totally collapsed, uh, nuclear bomb just kind of, and in many ways I had to, I had to really let go of, of that identity and that self that I had created. I, and so basically went through a divorce. I have three children as well. So that kind of makes matters a little bit more complicated, three beautiful children that I absolutely adore. So I knew that like, I didn't want to fully blow up my life. I was committed to these things, committed to, to my children. And so I entered into, yeah, just really trying to go through the healing process and found a therapist that was amazing. He helped me do a ton of work. And as I was going through that work, I started to really be attracted to some thinkers like Michael Gunger. Uh, he used to be part of the Gunger bands and a big worship pastor. Uh, he was podcasting with, I think it's called the liturgists. And he was telling these stories about like mushrooms and how mushrooms had really begun to like open himself up. And I'm like, oh, that's like, that sounds pretty far out there, man. Like, I don't know about that. And then another guy that I absolutely adore, another big influence of mine is Pete Holmes. He's a comedian, uh, Christian upbringing. He wrote a book called Comedy, Sex, God, which is just a beautiful, beautiful read for anybody that might be in these spaces or going through some sort of deconstruction. He too had a, uh, went through a divorce, although he caught his wife cheating on him. Uh, so just these things I could really connect with. And he talked about going through this experience with mushrooms and I was like, oh my gosh, like, and, and this euphoric experience and just having fun with it. And I was like, you know, like, okay, I, I'm, you know, I'm letting go of a lot of my tradition. I'm letting go of a lot of the maybe moralistic thinking around drugs. Uh, I mean, at this point I hadn't even smoked weed. Um, and so here in Colorado, that's legal. And so I was like, oh, at least I'm going to go explore that. I'm going to go try that out and see what that's like. Uh, that's legal. There's nothing wrong with it. And so I was like, okay, that's kind of fun and whatever. And as I started going deeper and deeper, uh, now kind of a, a, a famous book, but at the time it was pretty, just had come out was Michael Poland's How to Change Your Mind. And so I started to read that and I, I really opened my mind to psychedelics and how we've positioned them. You know, they, they got so entrenched in the, the war on drugs and, and I hadn't even begun to conceptualize that the idea of plant medicine is extremely different than heroin. Um, we've been so conditioned in the drug, the war on drug culture, 
that, you know, just drugs are bad across the board blanketing. And what Michael Pollan really begins to explore in his book is like, actually, you know, these things are pretty ancient. Like they, they've been around for a very, very, very long time. And is there something for us with these medicines that could provide some sort of healing that's not what we think of like black tar heroin, like sitting on the street corner and, you know, <laughs> all shot up, right? There's some sort of like more nuance to the situation than just that. And uh, so I read his book and I was like, all right, I want to, I want to try this. And I went to my therapist and I said, Hey, have you heard of any, anything around like therapy assisted stuff with psychedelics or, you know, as a therapist, do you have any, you know, what would you say? And a very good therapist. He was like, I can neither encourage you nor not encourage you to do these things. You just need to do what you think is right. So he took a very neutral position. I was like, all right, well, he didn't tell me no. So at that point I had heard, I can't remember from who it was from, but someone said, if you can't meditate for 20 minutes on a consistent basis, you probably shouldn't be doing mushrooms. And I was like, okay, uh, great. That's a great place to start. So just a from a, a practice standpoint, all spirituality, I mean, I've always been deep, somewhat spiritual, but when it came to things within the specific Christian vein, I had really walked away from that. And so I was ready to say, okay, great. Let, let's try some meditation. Let's just sit and practice. And I think I downloaded the Headspace app and, and just started saying, can I do 20 minutes of meditation consistently? Um, and I think the person said, you know, try it for six months. And so that's when I started. I was like, great, I'm going to start this process, started meditating and had some great, just kind of like centering elements of really learning how to become the observer of our thoughts and, and separate ourselves from our attachments of who we think we are and realize maybe there's like that one step of disconnect from who I am and then how I observe who I am. And meditation began to give me this practice of realizing there is a separation. There is my soul that we might call it. And there is my ego and my ego can drive my thoughts and all this stuff. And when I can step back and observe it, I'm less attached to it. I'm less attached to these outcomes and these certain things. And so I was growing, I was experiencing new things. I was reading more other spiritual thinkers like Jack Cornfield, who kind of comes from more of like a Buddhist tradition. I was reading Ram Dass. I was reading Annie Lamont. I was just really diving into other modalities of spirituality that was like really beautiful for me. And all the time I said, I mean, again, as I mentioned, I live in Colorado Springs. I have zero connection to any sort of like drugs, psychedelics. And I had no idea like how I was actually going to, I didn't even know how to get the stuff. Uh, and so I was like, all right, I don't, when this comes into my life, it'll be the right time. And I just left it at that. I wasn't going to force the situation. And I just trust that when it was right, it, it would come into my life. And then I, I met my partner and uh, she as probably about two months into dating uh, said, Hey, uh, I got, I got something for us. Um, and she didn't know we, we talked a little bit about it, but not super in depth. She's like, I got some edibles or I have some psilocybin. We could try. What do you want to do? And I was like, no question. Psilocybin. I've been waiting. <laughs> awesome. Before we get there, I got a couple questions. Yeah. This is mainly a comment. We don't have to spend too much time on it. You mentioned that, that kind of removing yourself from the traditional Christian paradigm mm kind of made you open to meditation. I don't understand why the modern American concept of Christianity somehow forgot to include meditation. I, I don't know. I know I was raised a Southern Baptist and I don't remember ever hearing that it was wrong, but it was always viewed 
meditation was always viewed as somehow Eastern pagan. I, I don't know. I don't, I, I think meditation could be enormously beneficial regardless of what paradigm you're coming from. And especially Christianity, for goodness sakes. Um, yeah. I think we could all benefit from that. And one other thing. So you didn't try cannabis till you were in your thirties. Correct. Could you just spend a moment or two discussing, because a lot of people who are beginning to try to understand psychedelics are also, you know, trying to understand how cannabis may or may not fit in, mm. into their life or in life in general. Could you spend just a moment um, discussing what that experience was like and what pros and cons you see cannabis having uh, in society today? Mm, mm, good questions. Yeah, I think so. When I first tried it, it was, you know, with some friends, it wasn't really in a, in a space where I felt like I had much of an experience with it. You know, a lot of times the first time people try cannabis, they're like, oh, it didn't work or I didn't like it. And I think that narrative is pretty true for a lot of people because they approach cannabis uh, as a recreational or party type of experience. So, you know, when you mix it with drinking and you mix it with alcohol and other things, it can be a nice little mind high and, and it gives you, uh, you know, it is a, a psychotropic, right? So it does have some psychedelic effects. You can sometimes, depending, you know, you can have some light tracers, some visualizations people might experience, depending again on strands, whether it's an indica strand or sativa strand, which are the two base, you know, cannabis strands, and they each have different effects on the body and the mind. And so at the, in the early beginning, when I first started trying it, I, I had some fun experiences with it. It kind of made movies more fun. It was like, oh, wow. Um, but it really, it, it didn't serve, uh, serve me from a practice standpoint. Practice meaning letting me actually dig deeper into my own soul, into my own psyche, into um, a, a ritual in some way, shape or form. And so again, early on, I think it, it was nice. I think it's one of those things that, you know, the, the side effects of it are, are pretty non-important. Uh, and frankly, I quit drinking. I've now been sober from alcohol for almost two and a half years. And I, after that, once I really quit drinking, then I really started to explore cannabis on a deeper level. And it was interesting because, um, you know, alcohol had become an addiction in many ways in my life. And so by giving that up and beginning to explore things with cannabis, you know, my friends are like, well, how's that any different than just getting drunk? Like you're just going to get high, you're getting drunk. Can't that just become another addiction fully? All of the stuff we're talking about can become addictions. They are nothing more than simple tools and how we use them is really, really important. I want to make sure everybody really hears that. None of this that we're talking about moving forward to psychedelics, none of it fixes you at all. It is a tool that can help you on your path, but that's it. That's all it is. And so I began to explore cannabis as a tool for diving deeper into my mind, diving deeper into um, maybe a, a filter. I've, I realized I have a pretty high filter a lot of times, especially several years ago. And I would, I would not feel comfortable sharing certain things with people. Uh, I don't know if you've dived into the Enneagram or if your listeners are into the Enneagram, but uh, if you are, I'm an, an Enneagram three with a wing four, which basically means I love to achieve. I love my image. I love all the things that, that we kind of been, been talking about that really kind of teed me up, right. To, to be this Enneagram four, but, or sorry, Enneagram three. But the, the reality was I had to do a lot of exploring in my own filters because I cared a lot about what I thought other people thought of me. So I could only understand myself through the lenses of other people. 
As I started diving in with some stuff with cannabis, I started to really see myself in a way that was me, that not through the lens of other people. And it really served me, served me well. And it has been a, a great tool and a great thing. And like anything, it can turn in, I, people say, you know, we can't be addictive. I actually think it can be. It may not be addictive in the sense that it's a substance, like my body needs this, but you can grow dependent on anything. You can be attached to it of saying, oh, for me to achieve this outcome, I must have X. If that's the case, that's the formula for addiction. To achieve this, I need X. X is the addiction. So whatever that is, we've got to look at that and really start to pay attention to how is that then that addiction? Because it serves us well, right? Again, not to dive too deep into addiction theory, but like addictions are simply our strategies for existing in the world. Um, and they get inflamed and then they start to, to, and they serve us well, especially early on. We, you know, alcohol for a lot of people, it's great. It loosens you up, opens you, you can talk more freely. You can communicate with people. You have more fun. It's great. It's a great thing until it's not. And, and I really believe with any of these substances that it is very important that one is paying attention to that uh, and making sure that they're not over, overly reliant on it. Because if you do, you're kind of missing out on, on the whole point, which is you actually don't need any of this. Thank you for, for delving into that. I like to get everyone's take on it. I appreciate your perspective. Yeah. So you're there with your partner and yep. she's she's got psilocybin, I guess, in... In pill form. Okay. Yep. So okay. ours was like mashed up pill form. Okay. Well, and so take us we, down that take us down that road. What happened? Yeah. So first experience, it was it was a pretty you know a lot of people like to know about dosages and how much you should or should not do. At this point, I I mean I just coming into it was a very light dose. I think I maybe did a gram, maybe a gram and a half. So nothing that um, sends you too deep, right? And again, dosages, especially with psilocybin the more you take, the, the more chaotic it's going to get, I think is the, the best way to think about it. So at that level, it was just, it was fun. It was a heart opening. We had these really deep conversations. Uh, I always like to kind of think about mushrooms as like uncle, uncle mushroom. It kind of has that very like uncle energy where it's like, you're accepted, you're loved. Let's get a warm hug. And like, let's talk about your life. Psilocybin tends to also have a past energy to it, just in the sense that like when you're on psilocybin, you, you memories come up, things that you haven't thought about in years, you're able to go back and feel things that you've never experienced before in a way of just your heart opening and maybe see it from a different perspective. And so, you know, there's a lot of different plant medicines that are out there. You'll hear a lot of different stories. You know, the differences between like ayahuasca and psilocybin is vastly different. Ibogaine is vastly different than ayahuasca. So it really depends again, when people are talking plant medicines, which one, because you're going to get different experiences. And I think they all have different healing properties to them. Uh, so in this case with psilocybin, it was just a lot of past and, and reconciling and integrating all of this dark, my dark past, my dark energy, the, the, the lies that I lived in and with my partner for, to share that and for her to see it and accept me and love me. And, and she already knew about all that. It wasn't like anything new came up, but there was just something that was deep about that experience that was, um, that really became transformative. And it just kind of opened me up to like, wow, this is, there's something here to, to really begin to explore. Uh, and just from a relationship standpoint, it was so deepening. Like our, like we saw each other in this really beautiful, deep way. 
And again, for us, that served us very well. And, and I think that's why a lot of times people talk about with psychedelics, you know, things like set and setting are so deeply important because you do open yourself up. I hear, especially within the Christian uh, community that, you know, the, the fear of opening yourself up to darkness, your fear of opening yourself up to demons. Um, and, and I think that's something that people need to, to consider. But I also believe that when you create a safe container, containers is a really popular word within the, the psychedelic community and the, the coaching community, which is where I'm at now. It's just saying, you know, this is the, the container that I'm in. What are all the elements that are here and making sure that I'm, I'm safe here? Um, and, and I deeply believe, yeah, people, people need to make sure that they're in a very safe, safe environment because stories of a bad trip, uh, frankly, are nothing more than just a negative set and setting. The mindset isn't there, your environment isn't safe, and you are opened up to some really different planes of consciousness might be the way to describe it. And if you're not mindful of that, it can, can lead to some places that could be traumatic. And I think some people have definitely experienced that. So uh, I want to make sure that people understand the gravity of these medicines. They should not be taken lightly. I believe them, you know, in a ceremony space or in a, in a more structured container with ritual, they have the real healing powers to them, but like anything, it can be just as detrimental. I really appreciate you bringing that up because I hear that often, you know, people's concern about openness to what they might call dark energy. Mm -hmm. And I'm never exactly certain how to address it because they're absolutely right but you're also open to really positive influence as well. So, I mean, I discuss it with people, but I never know really how to have closure around that, that idea. I think you really put um, some per perspective around it by making the case that really ultimately concludes in regard to set and setting. Mm. You know, if you're in a safe setting and you have a, a healthy mindset, then the chances of being influenced in a negative or dark way are probably significantly reduced, if not totally eliminated altogether. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is people have to realize, uh, again, I think it depends on how we talk about psychedelics. Um, I don't remember who, who the thinker was, but they said, you know, when you use the same term for everything, it means nothing, right? So like the idea of love, when we say we love everything, well, now all of a sudden love doesn't mean anything. I think psychedelics can sometimes maybe get into a little bit of that idea. Like when we say everything is psychedelics, it means nothing is psychedelics on some levels. So it's really important for me, at least in my understanding of psychedelics and, and the way I like to work with it and believe in it is that it is in a more ceremonial, psycho-spiritual work that can be done with it and the healing around it. Now, people are going to party with it and they're going to do stuff with it. And, and, and I would not advocate, you know, if people want to do that, they're adults, in my personal opinion, they should be allowed to do what they want to do. Uh, they, they can go and have those experiences and, and, and whatnot. But that said, you are, you can open yourself up to having some negative experiences, especially if you've never really worked with these medicines before. Um, and so, you know, if you're looking at tools like MDMA, which is often more of a party drug or LSD or some of these other ones that are out there, you just got to know like what that's going to, how that's going to serve you. And, and frankly, it could be nothing more than just a great time. And that's, that's okay that we need, we need enough of a, of space to say, awesome. You saw some visualizations and you experienced that music on a level that you never knew was possible. Good for you. And like, that's awesome. I think that's great. On the other side of that though, when you start talking about actually doing this deeper healing. And for me, what I honestly can look at it from a perspective of rebirth, there is a conversion experience with this medicine. 
Um, and, and I think the Christ gave a great example of showing us that we go through multiple conversions in our life. We're always growing in our relationship with the divine. And that's going to require these conversion moments as we see them taking place. I think you look at the scriptures and you can see these beautiful stories of conversion moments. Um, you know, maybe it was Peter realizing for the first time, everything is clean. I think it's an Acts eight, nine or 10, somewhere in there. She comes down, you know, maybe, maybe he was on something who knows not for me to judge, but regardless, like he had a vision of something otherworldly. And then he had to figure out how to integrate that into his life. I mean, imagine the, the mind blowing experience of living a perfect Jewish life and now being told you can eat whatever you want. Crazy. How do you integrate that into your life? For me, that's actually very similar to what a lot of people experience on a psychedelic trip. They see something, they have some sort of vision. I'm not saying Peter's doing psychedelics, but I'm just saying like that same energy is there. And I, I really believe that at this point, psychedelics gives us an opportunity to commune with the divine and, and the divine, you know, if we kind of think about the planes of consciousness, there's a lot of teachers that talk about this in different ways. For me, I look at it as there's kind of four main planes. And then within that, there's all these subdivisions, but you know, we have the physical, we have the stuff that we can touch, we can feel, we can see above that. We get into like kind of the thought emotional plane. We see our emotions, we experience them, maybe even our ego, we can kind of put into that plane where it's very connected to the physical, but it's also something that's not seen and touched. And then we get to the, the next plane, which is like our soul, right? We all know we have spirit. We all know that there's like this deeper thing that's going on within ourselves. And that's kind of our soul. And then the fourth big plane would be like spirit, God, ultimate consciousness, the divine lives, whatever term we want to use. And for me, what's, what plant medicine does is it basically like takes you from the physical and like launches you into the spiritual. Like you're just like, boom, you're out. <laughs> you are now communing with the divine. And when you look at like a psilocybin experience, again, if, when you take a bigger dose, which I've done now, I've, I've had a, a several trips where, you know, five grams or more, and you really go through this like deconstruction beginning process where you, you literally feel like you're going through the, a rebirth of some sort. Your ego, some people might call it the ego death, a lot of different terms that you can put to it, but it sends you to a place where you, you literally have to go through that plane of consciousness. And then you kind of come into this space where you realize your spirit and the divine are actually the same, which is what Christ said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you get to start to swim in these waters where you're like, oh my gosh, like it's real. It's actually true. Like I, I can see it. I, and I've walked enough people through this as, um, as a coach and as someone that has been in conversations with people where it's like, yeah, like this is, this is real. And, and then, and then you come back to this plane and you say, okay, great. What do I do about it? <laughs> right. How do I integrate it? How do I start living my life differently? How do I practice differently? How do I love God in a more authentic and real way? Uh, and I think that's the invitation that, that this medicine has for us. So sorry, a bit of a tangent no, there, but yeah, we that's can. Fine. That's great. Uh, it sounds like that first experience, you know, really moved you. Yeah. How did that influence the direction of your life, your career, mm -hmm. your relationships? What were the results over the years beyond that? And how did yeah. that affect your life going forward? Man, it has been so from that first experience, it was it was really beginning to do the work. At that point, I was working for a um, a sales coaching company. 
I was, you know, do it working virtually, you know, this is pandemic season, right? So we're all in our homes and going through that process is probably about two years ago. Now, I guess it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so the part of me that began to awaken was an openness back to the divine. Um, I never fully shut myself off from God in my deconstruction. I could never go to the place where I was willing to say I'm an atheist or I don't believe in God. I always, I always believed in something much bigger. Um, and, and for a season, the container or the, the structure of Christianity just didn't serve me. I, I just walked away from it. I couldn't talk about it. You know, two years ago, I would not be having this conversation with you, um, regardless of psychedelics or not, just even talking about the faith and talking about my upbringing, I couldn't talk about, I didn't, I frankly didn't want to talk about it. And so what it did is it sent me into actually like doing the work and, and trying to figure out like, what is this? Why can't I talk about this stuff? And over the course of, of probably two years, every time, you know, again, journeying, it's something that you shouldn't be doing uh, too often, right? Your, your body can develop a little bit of a, it's not an addiction, but you will uh, create a little bit of a... Um, What's the word that I want like to Like a tolerance? Yeah, or? thank you. Yeah, you get more tolerant to it. So you just need more. And I didn't want to develop that. So, you know, journeying every three, four months, kind of uh, to see what else is there. And every time going into it with an intention, you know, hey, I want to learn this thing, or I have a question that I want to explore. Um, and so every time I would go in, I would have an intention and it varied uh, at different times. But again, very ceremonial, always done with more ceremonial type music which is something I love. If people are ever curious, a, a guy, check out East Forest. He's got a, several different music tracks, but he's got one called Music for Mushrooms, which is about five hours long. And it's, it'll just take you through the entire journey. It's beautiful. Um, and it really does open you in some, some beautiful ways. So music is a big part of, of ceremony for me in that process. Um, and so my life began to become more integrated. I began to not have all these compartments of who I was of like Jason, the ex pastor, Jason, the cheater, Jason, this Jason, that. And I started to realize like, actually all of it can, it has a place in myself and I can actually be okay with it. And so about eight months ago, I decided, I was like, you know, I want to do more, more work with this. I see the spiritual, I, I see that there's something really here and so I wanted to go through a, a certification and I found uh, an organization called Being True to You, which does transformation recovery coaching. And it's a, it's a five-month program where you're learning the ins and outs of addiction, recovery, psycho-spiritual transformation, and, and entheogens, right? All the plant medicines that are out there and how they, how they work with people. And so I went through the process of becoming a certified coach. Um, so that I could really begin doing this work with people. And it really wasn't even that long ago. It was probably uh, four or five months ago now that I had my, my, uh, a big hero's dose. Like, so again, like five grams where you really get sent into uh, a different level of experience with the psilocybin. And in that experience, uh, there was just the deep awakening of, I am a pastor. I can't walk away from it and I can't walk away from God and I can't walk away from this tradition. It's my tradition. It's what I grew up in. Yes. I can see the beauty in Eastern thought. I can see some of the beauty that is now available to us when we look at some of the teachings of the Buddha, or maybe some of the teachings that Hinduism provides or teachings um, that, you know, uh, more modern teachings like Ram Dass that are out there. Those are all beautiful. And I can learn a lot from them. 
but my container is Christianity. It's what I know. It's the stories I connect with. And that really opened me up to again, saying like, okay, like I, I'm still a pastor, even though I don't, I probably don't know that I'll ever have a congregation or I'll have a church. My goal in life is to help people along in their spiritual journey. And now having it at a more probably a place of neutrality, like I don't need to convince anybody that, that my way is better than theirs. So I still can't really sell Jesus very well, but I'm less concerned about that these days. Uh, I'm more concerned that people, um, I think it really comes down to it is they're not outsourcing their healing. And even within Christianity, I think one of the things I've seen is we tend to want to outsource the work. Uh, and I don't mean this in an offensive way. But we kind of have this narrative that Jesus in his saving of our, of our souls and forgiveness of our sins, the narrative kind of is, and I don't know what it was like for you, but like, you know, bring your sins to the cross. I always remember like the pilgrim's progress, like analogy of like the bags, right? I'm carrying all this sin. And then I just bring it to the cross and I let it go. And I'm now a new person. Unfortunately, I think there's truth in that, but I think what's happened in society and, and the narrative is that, oh, that means Jesus just forgave me. I don't, I don't actually have to deal with that in my life anymore. It's so I kind of outsource my healing to my salvation. And there's a part of me that's beginning to awaken to the fact that Jesus, especially as I'm going back and reading the gospels with new lens and new eyes, like Jesus is like, no, no, no. Like you do the work. <laughs> like you have to go through this process. You have to go through death and resurrection. And I think that's actually now the beauty, especially as we're coming up on Easter, the resurrection story is that it's our story. Yes, Jesus rose and, and yes, he came back from the dead, but so do we. And, but we've got to do the work and we've, we can't outsource that healing. We've got to go in. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes within Christianity, that's really hard work to do. And so we kind of just, it's easier to simplify it and be like, oh, well, Jesus, forgive your sins. Absolutely. Grace is one of the most beautiful things in this world. But that doesn't mean I still don't have to like deal with my own crap and I have to go through this process. And I think psilocybin is a tool that can really help people do that. Yeah, we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Mm -hmm. It sounds like there's a degree of uh, difficulty and labor involved in that process. (laughs) And even uh, with psilocybin, right? I don't know what your experiences have been like, Clint, but like with psilocybin, it's not fun. I think people need to realize that sometimes like. It is a difficult journey. Uh, there can be purging your, your, your stomach, you're throwing up, you're, you're expound, you know, there's a lot of toxins that are coming out. It can be really uncomfortable. And so it's not like just you pop a pill and you're like having pure euphoria. You know, a lot of these plant medicines, ayahuasca, ibogaine, again, um, psilocybin, uh, peyote, like a lot of them, they, they're hard. It's not like, you know, MDMA, that one you kind of pop and you feel warm and fuzzy and it's kind of a good experience, but like a lot of these ones that are pure plant, like it's, it's difficult. Um, and I want people, you know, sometimes realize like, that doesn't mean it's a bad journey. I want to go back to just one thing that you were talking about with like opening yourself up to the darkness. One of the things I've realized is if that comes to you in a journey, then that means there's probably something you need to work out with because it's already there. I don't believe a journey is going to bring up anything that doesn't already exist within you. It just simply opens you up to it. And if you've not been paying attention to some darkness or some dark energy or even demonic energy that's in your life, it could show up. And so that's why meditating or praying or whatever practice suits you best in preparation for your experience is absolutely crucial. So 
that's kind of, so I went through this process. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit all over the place, but coming back to like being a coach now, my goal is to help people work with these medicines in a healing way. And that really requires kind of four key pieces of preparation work that before you have an experience, you, you have to prepare. Uh, I would not recommend that anybody just go out there and just take five grams of, of psilocybin that that is, you know, you might have an experience, but like that it's, there's some things you can do to really help in that process. So find, find someone that you can do work with, find someone that has had these experiences and do preparation work. And then you're going to have your experience. So whatever that looks like, and then you've got to integrate because frankly, you know, just having an experience, I don't remember which thinker it was. It might've been Terrence McKenna. who's was talking about going, you know, kind of more of a psycho knot, you know, it's literally like you're picking up the phone and you're talking to the divine and you hang up. And what do you, what do you do? Some people just want to pick the phone back up and keep talking. Well, that's not going to really serve you very well, right? Nothing actually comes of your life. So you've got to figure out how to integrate. You've got to figure out how to take what these experiences are bringing to you and, and really live into yourself. So you have to go through the integration process, but once you've integrated, then you also have to cultivate it. So just because you like integrated it into your life does not mean it will sustain. And I think there's a parallel here to the parable of the seeds that the Christ talks about when he's spreading the seeds and some fall in the good soil and some fall. It's kind of the same idea. Like you're going to have these experiences, but unless it's cultivated into your life, there's nothing more than just a great experience. And you saw some visualizations, which was all fine and well. But again, I think from a spiritual perspective and for anybody that's listening about the, and what curious about the powers of psychedelics as it relates to their life, it's this kind of work that's really going to take you there. Otherwise, again, you can just have a, a great experience. And that's just my perspective. I know there's lots of other ones that are out there, but in my experience, that's really what I've seen to kind of be true. Oh, that's, that's great advice, man. And uh, I want to get back to that in a second, but when you were speaking about the darkness being not something that you're necessarily vulnerable to from the outside, which is possible, mm -hmm. but more that that darkness is actually inside of us. Um, you know, Jesus said, it's not what I don't certainly don't want to think that he was, uh, or I'm not concluding that he was speaking about psychedelics here, but he said, it's not what goes into the mouth that mm -hmm. defiles a man. It's what comes out of the mouth. Mm -hmm. We are often very concerned about what food we eat, what drugs we take, what uh, media we take in through our eyes. And that's very important. We should be discerning in that, of course. But we often attribute our folly to those things coming into us. Mm. You know, it takes some of the blame off of us. Like, well, mm. I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't uh, drank a six pack or I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't have seen that, you know, dirty comic on TV. Mm. Um, not there's something inside of us that, that also, mm. unfortunately, there, there's something within us that, that carries that darkness too. We have the ability mm. to share it, unfortunately. I think that part of our walk as spiritual seekers and Christians in particular, we have to be cognizant of the damage we can actually do, mm. you know, and, and, and make sure we're not participating in spreading pain because we all have the capacity to do it. Mm. We do. We do. And I think if I remember correctly, Jesus is telling that story to the religious elite. I think he's talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees when he's talking about that, because they're challenging him on what his disciples are doing and his disciples are breaking all the rules. I think if I remember correctly, it's in the context of fasting and, and the feasting and, 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 and the disciples are feasting and they're saying, well, shouldn't they be fasting? And the, the elite, right? The ones that think they have it are questioning the Christ on how it quote unquote should be done. 
and he completely blows their paradigm. And he's like, it doesn't matter what you go, what goes into you. It's actually what's coming out of you that matters. And, and I think that's one of the things that the religious like to pay attention to is what goes in because it's far more something we can control. I can say that is bad. It's far more uh, certain. I can have a lot more certitude around what is good and what is bad that I'm putting in myself. But the mystics, and I think Christ is speaking to this a little bit by breaking the paradigms of the religious by saying, ah, it's actually what comes out of you that matters. Your, your words your emotions, these things that we think we can just leave at the foot of the, at the cross and don't have to worry about as long as we keep all the right things going in, we don't have to pay attention to what's coming out. And that's the challenge. And I think honestly, when we look at it in context of plant medicine, that's actually what it's looking at is we're saying, you know what, I'm not going to worry about what's going in quote unquote, I'm going to focus on what's coming out and medicine like this will show you what's going to be coming out. It will give you perspective. It will show you a side of yourself uh, on the level of, of our consciousness um, that we have to be willing to know that's there. And I think, you know, that's one of those areas for, for a lot of Christians are beginning to explore these, these waters is really realizing and opening our, our minds up to the idea that there are multiple planes of consciousness. I don't have the answers. I don't know how it all works. I just know it to be true. I know that, that my, again, I, I know I exist on a physical level. I exist on a thought level. I exist on a soul level. And I know there's a bigger level than me across the board. So what does it look like to live on these multiple planes or a makeup of all of it? And that might be far out there for some people to conceptualize because it's easier to think that, oh, it's just this and that. It's more nuanced than that. There, there's so much more here that I think Christ was inviting us into um, and what he, he gave us the, the framework to, to really begin to explore. And I had a friend kind of explain it to me this way. Tell me if this lands with you and if this kind of connects as people, we love to have a map and especially today, like we got Google maps and we can know the destination of where we want to go. And if we put this in a spiritual context, we can think about it like heaven, right? Cause that kind of seems to be the penultimate reason why we do much of what we do within Christianity is so that we can get to be with eternity and get to spend eternity with the divine. And so we look at the scriptures kind of as our Google maps of saying, okay, great make this right-hand turn here, make this left-hand turn here. And yeah, it's still a little bit confusing, but like we've really brought it down to like, here's how you do it, right? Say the prayer, you go through the process and, and you have it all laid out for you. It's an instruction manual, right? I think, I don't remember who it was, but someone said the Bible is like the basic in, or basic instructions before leaving earth or something like that, right? Again, we look at the Bible as an instruction manual. What the Christ is inviting us to is not the, the map, but the compass, He's saying, yeah, yeah, you don't, you, you don't need that map. You, you don't need to know how to get there. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a compass and we could call it the Holy Spirit. We call it whatever we want, but that compass, when you're listening to it, cause it's in you will point you North. It always, you will always find God. You will always find the divine when you live in tune with the spirit, which is in you, not out of you, but in you. And so I think sometimes this awakening is, a, is growing out of just thinking we have the instruction manual, but now saying the compass. And for me, that's kind of what I really started leaning into. I'm, I'm letting go of some of the, the, the directions and I'm saying, I get to play now with my compass and I get to go find God. And again, sometimes that can break certain elements. And I think tradition is really important to help guide us. I think it's an important wall of our, of our uh, a, a direction that we're leaning into is having tradition and, and what is thousands of years of exploring God leading us to really, really important. 
but it's, it can't be at all. We, we have to have this deeper compass in ourselves and awaken to that. Yeah. You did an excellent job of giving advice. If a person was to consider using psychedelics with regard to set and setting and integration and being intentional and being slow and deliberate. But I think a lot of people right now are not certain whether Mm -hmm. psychedelics is something they should consider or whether it's right for maybe a loved one in their life who's suffering. Mm -hmm. And I know this is a very difficult um, question to answer because that would be on a very unique individual basis. Mm -hmm. But is is there maybe some advice you can give a person on, on whether a psychedelic experience is something that might or might not have benefit for themselves or others, or even society as a whole. I'm sure some people are questioning not for themselves, but is this even right, you know, legally, morally uh, acceptable? So big question, if you might just spend a little time elaborating on that to your best Mm -hmm. ability. Yeah. I mean, I, I, Obviously, because of the landscape that we're in, and we're still talking about illegal substances here in the United States, would never advocate somebody, you know, kind of do some of these things. Everybody has to come to their own decision as what they're comfortable kind of to, to do on, on that front. So that's kind of my first and foremost main caveat. If somebody's really hung up at it from a legal perspective, then don't touch it. That could be some of that like dark energy of like, oh, I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing that can actually not serve you well in, in the end run. So if you are not more, if you don't align with that, that's the first thing for me that that's really important. Now, people are waking up to realizing like, oh, maybe this has kind of been you know, false or, or maybe they need to go to a country where it is legal, right? Mexico, Central America, there's a lot of retreat centers where people can go and have these experiences in a meaningful space that kind of takes away some of those legal, those legal pieces. But as, as to whether or not people should, should be doing it, I, I really do believe on some levels, on an individual perspective, it should be something that if you want it, just begin to do the work. Uh, that's the best advice. I, it's similar to my experience. So that's all I can really give is our advice is simply your experience shared. And so that's it. That would be like, start, start reading, start going out and, and finding other, there are so many people that are writing about it right now. We are truly going through a, a renaissance in the psychedelic space. Um, you know, I think it's akin to what we were seeing happening in the seventies, sixties and seventies, fifties, even, uh, it's different because we have the history that we're building on, but we're exploring new stuff, new territory with it. So we really are going through a renaissance. It's coming into the, con- the, the, the mainstream on a more meaningful level. And I think, again, it depends on when we, how do we define psychedelics, right? So again, back to like, what do we mean by it from a societal perspective uh, and what should be or should not be legal? My personal perspective is I do believe in decriminalization. I think that's a really important thing. I think that at the end of the day, somebody going to jail for engaging in something that grew from this earth, it's not even like a a chemical compound. It came from this earth to make that illegal feels a little bit extreme to me on some levels. So I think a decriminalization we're going to see happen. It's happening in certain cities. Um, You know, Denver decriminalized psilocybin. Oregon is about to decriminalize psilocybin. Uh, there's so much research that's happening on MDMA that's that's incredible. But I think my my biggest concern to the whole movement right now is that it will become another pill for people to take. And uh, and it's not hard to, to imagine a reality where it's like, oh, I don't want to deal with my crap. So I'm just going to take another microdose of MDMA or a microdose of psilocybin. And I feel happy. I, I don't think it's not about feeling happy. 
suffering, these things that we're talking about, these things that you explore in plant medicine, um, suffering serves us. And I really believe in, in all of the course of humanity and all of our religions and all of its expressions. If someone figured out how to remove suffering, we would be doing that, but we haven't. Over thousands of years, here we are as human beings still suffering. So the goal is to not remove suffering from our lives. Unfortunately, I think modern ways of thinking, that does tend to be the goal. How can I limit my suffering as much as possible so that I can be happy? It's that's, I don't think any spiritual teacher, especially not the Christ, gave us that model. It was actually like through suffering, you will find yourself. Through death, you will find yourself. And so my concern with the psychedelic movement is that if it moves, and it, it, it could, I, I think the pattern is there. If it, if it moves into another way to remove suffering from your life, that's just, it's just going to be another thing. Uh, it could become another substance that people get addicted to. It, it could really go to a place where, yeah, it's not really serving us. You feel happy. It's got all the great things, but you're not doing that deeper work. Um, and so my hope and the way, at least for me that I want to see things and the way I at least will work with psychedelics is helping people work through their suffering and do the deeper work and do the deeper healing. And, and a lot of people, maybe they only need one or two experiences and that's it. That's all. It's not something you got to do, come back to and do a bunch of times, but you know, just one experience can completely reframe your understanding uh, of suffering and you'll continue to suffer but now you have some new, some new tools to work with that suffering, some new tools to see the joy that's in it. And, and I think, again, that's what the Christ was inviting us to, uh, is a life not devoid of suffering, but a life of working with our suffering. And there's a lot of ways to get there. It's just that psychedelics kind of, I think, speeds up the process a little bit. But if we depend on it or we rely on it, then it's just simply going to become another addiction. Um, and big pharma will make a bunch of money off of it and people will just be popping their MDA, MDMA pills. So that's maybe more of like a, a sad <laughs> perspective of it. My hope is that more and more people will see the healing, the, the true psycho-spiritual experience of it. And, and that will lead them places. I think right now what you're seeing happen in the psychedelic space, as well as people are really wanting to explore like new compounds you know, so like you look at like LSD, LSD and MDMA, you know, those are derivatives from plants um, that scientists could experiment with and play with. But that kind of experimenting has been shut down for the last 80 years or so. And now a lot of people are excited about getting to explore and find new compounds. And that frankly does, you know, scare me a little bit. I, I have a healthy fear of the idea of like humanity developing a brand new compound to alter our consciousness. I would tend to more want to play with the actual plants that are growing on this earth and what they can, how they can serve me than focusing on what can we, what can we create? Because I do think there's a pretty dark path there of what could be created and altering people's consciousnesses and controlling them. And, you know, it's all, it's all there. It's not that it's science fiction, but it's really not that far out there when you start looking at what's possible. Yeah. And I think there's a, definitely an angle to pharmaceutically commodify these things, mm -hmm. you know, and make them part of that paradigm. Yeah. Which we don't have to go down that road. I think that's a great take on it. That really speaks to me. I think that's a very uh, mature way of looking at, at the situation. One thing that I just add to, again, this question, should or I shouldn't I take psilocybin or take psychedelics or anything? I, honestly, I believe in, in, in the practice of discernment. Like really spend time, 
and 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 do the work of discerning. Open yourself up to the people that in your that are you know trusted people in your lives, but maybe open yourself up to other people that that are talking about it. Uh, maybe that's why they're listening to this podcast. They're trying to discern what's going on in this world and psychedelics and my faith and what's happening. And that's what I think is so valuable about what you're offering is is giving people a place to to discern and to listen to many perspectives. And so, yeah, spend the time, really discern, listen to what God has for you. And, and I genuinely believe if this is part of your path and this is a, a tool that will help you in your healing, it'll come into your life. And then if it doesn't, okay, there's, it's not a, it's never going to be like, oh, every Christian needs to now take psilocybin. Cause again, once that happens, it, it, it doesn't work that way. I just don't see anything um, that, that we have as patterns or processes for, for growth that is a one size fits all kind of thinking. Thank you for that. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. Cause I, I don't have an answer. I don't have a yes or no, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. Discernment. That's wisdom. Yeah. Understanding. Yeah. Well, what, what, what's your current practice right now? What's, uh, what's your, your status at the current job and uh, what goes on there? How, how can that yeah. help people facilitate their journey and what, you know, what are your plans for the future? Yeah. Yeah. Great. So my, my current status on a spiritual perspective is I'm deeply intrigued by Jesus in a way I've never been before. Uh, I'm, I'm reading the gospels in a way that I've never read before. It's amazing. It's, I love it. I never thought I'd get to that place where I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is actually amazing. I don't know that I'm ready to start taking on labels again, like being a quote unquote Christian or this, because again, those those are hard for me because of just contextually and our culture and everything that's going on. So, you know, I, but, but at the end of the day, I know this container of the Christ and the stories that are in the scriptures and the path that it leads us to is really helpful in, in, in uh, maybe orienting the compass to true North. Right. So if we come back to that analogy, I don't need the instruction manual anymore, but I still need to know how to orient myself to the direction that is North. And that is my practice. How do I find North? What are the tools? What are the things that are helping serve me in finding that North direction of, of where, where we can find God and the divine. And so going on that journey, that's really where I'm at. Work-wise, um, as I mentioned, that coaching company, I, I got the incredible opportunity to come on working as their uh, director of marketing. So now that is the, the thing, I guess, marketing is effectively evangelism, which is kind of funny to come back to, like the idea that I'm, I'm trying to help spread this word of how people can be working with these substances in ways that truly lead to transformation. So the organization, again, is called Being True to You. We have a couple different facets of what we do. We do coach training. We do it about twice a year. So if anybody wants to go through that process, it's a five-month process. We believe in neutrality. So we are not pushing any perspective on people. We want people to be, you know, if they are coming at it from a place of hardline Southern Baptist perspective, beautiful. I am not here to convince you of anything. I want to work within what you're bringing to me, which I think in this space, sometimes it can lean Eastern and it can lean to like, oh, the Buddha or meditation or these things. And for Christians that don't have context for those, it's not helpful. It kind of, and it can feel dark and it can, you know, we've been told those things are demonic and those things are not of, of God. And so to work with people that are coming at it from that perspective doesn't serve you. So um, we work for neutrality. We work to make sure all of our coaches are trained in neutrality so that we're not, you know, we want to, we want to empower people to go through the experiences that they go through. The other thing we do offer is integration work. So we have uh, over a hundred coaches that are 
that we we have on our, our team that can work with anybody that might be wanting to go through one of these processes. So anyone that's listening, if you're like, I want to go somewhere again, this isn't a plug for, for our process, but simply just saying there are tools out there to help you. So our coaches are out there. They will work with people. We'll do prep work. We'll really help people decide whether or not they're ready to do this or not. Some people come to us and they'll spend four or five months working with a coach just to do the prep work, to be ready for their experience. Um, or people come to say, oh, I got a trip plan. I'm going down. I'm, I'm taking ayahuasca. I'm leaving in a month and I want to do a little bit of work before I get there. Great. We can work with people that are kind of all across. And then we do the integration work. So once people come back from their experiences, we don't touch any of the medicine. We don't serve. We don't sit. We don't engage with that at all. Again, legally, those are really important things that we're not touching. Uh, but once people come back and from their experience, then you, our coaches are all trained in knowing how to help someone integrate the pretty incredible experiences and sometimes hard to put into words, um, the experiences that happen. So we do the integration work and, and then people then are on there. They got to do the cultivation. So we kind of help them in that process. So I work as a marketing director in that. I'm also, I work as a coach. So I, I spend time working with people doing this work as well. And that's kind of where I'm at now, the future. And my, the future is I hope to, to see truly the healing powers of, of what this medicine has to offer, whether people choose to take it or not, creating spaces for people to feel safe and sharing their experiences, being able to, to talk about it. And for me personally, I'll, I'll, what I'm really beginning to explore more of is also work with men and our own masculinity and, and what that looks like and how it fits in with the church and the Christ. And yeah, I'm really exploring some really fun new territory and I hope it will continue to express itself in creating either retreat spaces for people to have these conversations or continuing to, to get to have great conversations like this. And we'll see kind of ultimately where it leads. Well, before we let you go, is there any information or resources you'd point people to and uh, any books or media? And in particular, tell us how someone could find being true to you if that's something they want to find more out. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things I would recommend for anybody that's looking to kind of begin again, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan is a great, great resource when people are getting started. Have you read that yet, Clint? Yeah, I have twice. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's just a great, it gives you so much context. And so that's a big one that I'm sure you probably talked about before. I, I love that, that book as a, as a resource for people that are getting started um, kind of in this vein, being true to you.com is our website. My email is Jason at being true to you. Welcome anyone to, to shoot me an email. We'd be happy to either point you in the right direction or answer any questions that you might have in this. You know, one thing I found is for those of us that are in the faith, you know, more and more of us are beginning to have these conversations, but a lot of people are questioning it. And so I think it's really important the work that you're doing here continues because there, there's a lot to be explored here from many, many different perspectives. And so it's really, really cool. So for anyone that's listening, keep listening, keep listening to these amazing people. I went back to your catalog and listened to several interviews that you did and really, really good stuff. So just what you're doing is an incredible resource for people as they move, move forward. Well, I appreciate that. Jason Sheffield, thank you for joining us today on the Psychedelic yeah. Christian Podcast. I appreciate your, your willingness to share your story and your honesty. And I appreciate the work you're doing today. I hope we'll speak again soon. Thanks, Clint. Appreciate it. Goodbye. I would like to once again thank Jason Sheffield for joining me on the podcast and for boldly sharing with us the trials and triumphs of his journey. And if you have questions or comments for Jason, I encourage you to reach out to him to explore how his expertise can assist you in your journey. 
And if you enjoyed this interview, please remember to show us some love at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com slash support. And until we meet in our next episode, continuing to explore the intersection of faith and psychedelics, may the Lord bless you and keep you.